0: Today is the first Sunday of the second month of the year and I wonder uh, if you are here and you are, how you're doing with those New Year's resolutions that you might have began here a month ago. Uh, One definition of a resolution is, is this, a firm decision to do or to not do something. Is that how you think of it? Is that how you define it? Do you think much about resolutions yearly or for your life? And I... I spent a few minutes this after, or this week uh, searching online and found uh, some listings of New Year's resolutions. In case you want to try some new ones here, Parade Magazine, I've never read this magazine except for this week, had over 50 that you can try. They said, first, you can focus on a passion, not the way you look. Or, or two, stop gossiping, don't be that person. Three, give one compliment a day. Or number four, go a whole day without checking your email. Some of you go weeks, I know that. Five, read a a book a month. Six, go someplace you've never been. Seven, clear out the clutter. Eight, turn off your phone one night a week. Nine, write down one thing you're grateful for every night. Ten, don't buy things you don't need. Eleven, walk to a coworker's office instead of emailing them. Twelve, keep a journal. Thirteen, clean out your car. Fourteen, take the stairs. Fifteen, the last one. Travel somewhere without posting it on social media. For some of you, that's impossible, right? I wonder, I mean, some of these might be healthy addition to our new year, and yet I wonder how many would be set aside so quickly. My car does need to be cleaned out. It would be good to turn off my phone more often. How easily, though, we can be distracted and even misguided in our resolutions looking to satisfy ourselves really more than anyone else. And we're prone, we're all prone to be narrow-minded when it comes to how we should live. There was another man in church history that had something to say about resolutions. His name was Jonathan Edwards. He at one time was the president of Yale and pastored a few churches in the Northeast. At age 19, he sat down and penned 70 resolutions that he decided to review each week in his life. Edwards wrote about them, he says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so so far as they are agreeable to him and his will for Christ's sake. Let me read just a few of his. Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved to inquire every night as I'm going to bed where and I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and where I have denied myself also at the end of every week and month and year. Resolved very much to exercise myself in all this all my life long with the greatest openness I am capable of to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to him all of my sins, temptations, difficulties, sorrows, fears, hopes, desires, and everything in every circumstance. I wonder, do we have the same openness towards God, the same desire as Edwards, the same resolute obedience that Edwards desired for his life? How much of our lives would change if we were determined to take an account of our actions and our words every single day, every week, every month of the year? I believe Jonathan Edwards had the right idea about how we should think about our lives and our remaining time on earth. It seemed to be good resolutions for us in our lives. He he lived a life determined and focused on trying to please the one who had redeemed him. Maybe it would do you well this week to Google Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. They're there online and look to apply them to your life. The people, when we come to the book of Haggai, are in back in Jerusalem. They come back from exile with the best intentions, being resolved to begin building the temple. And they get off to a pretty good start. Approximate 46,000 people bring their funds to the building project. Some say to the tune of $5.5 million in our time. The whole list there is in Ezra too, if you want to read it. A lot of money. They had the best beginning. They, they laid the foundation. And they seemed to be happy, resolved to follow God and what God had instructed them to do. In fact, the book of Ezra is a good commentary in the book of Haggai. Because in chapter 1, the Lord speaks to Cyrus, king of Persia, that the Lord has given him the kingdoms of the earth and charged him then to build a house in Jerusalem. And as you read in Ezra and you get to chapter 3, you, you find out there's there's opposition. People are bullied and to stop building the, the, the temple there. In Ezra 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Counselors were bribed. I, I think that's lawyers or even more applicable city planners. Building inspectors. That helps us understand a little bit, right? Put us in their position. Building inspectors were bribed and thus delayed the building of the temple. Have you any had that issue before or currently? You know what they experienced then. You see, the people received this pressure and then they bail on the resolution to build the temple and obey God. And internally, they had lost hope that God was gonna help them. And their faith begins to wane, and it results in them setting aside the rebuild. So even the fear of man was strong with them. And so God let it sit. He didn't say anything to his people for 16 years. While the footers of the foundation stood incomplete and without any evidence of future progress, until August 29th, 520 B.C. According to our calendars, that's where we come to Haggai chapter 1. Right here at the beginning, it's the first day that the Lord's voice would come to his people since they arrived back in Jerusalem. And they're still under the rule of a king that it's not their own, and God wasn't going to be silent anymore about this situation. He was going to hold them to their resolutions, because in those resolutions, God would be glorified. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Haggai chapter 1. If you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 743. If you do not have a Bible of your own, please take this as a gift from our congregation. And if you're unfamiliar at reading the Bible, the the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. And so this morning we're going to read and look at Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read it and so follow with me with your Bible open there. If you don't have a Bible open, you're going to get lost. So I encourage you to have one open and, and, and follow as I read. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house? Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. This is God's word and I pray he'll be glorified in the preaching of it. And so I'm gonna pray and I ask that you would join me, encourage you to pray for me as I preach and I'll pray for you as you listen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace that has brought us to this place this morning to sit under the preaching of your word and we pray that you would be glorified in our midst. That your people would be stretched and and look to apply your word May you soften our hearts, open our ears, and give us strength to our souls to worship you alone for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. First point here in the outline is the Lord calls them into question. We're gonna look at verses one through four. The Lord calls them into question. Haggai comes onto the scene here, and he seems to be known by the people. There's, There's no other mention of Haggai and his preaching except for the book of Ezra, But the title is given to him, the prophet. It makes me wonder if the people already knew him. There's no exact information in Haggai. Perhaps he might have been as old as 70 when he began these four sermons that make up the book. And it looks like his ministry only lasts four months from August to December. And he isn't mentioned again in scripture. And he says in verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The Lord of hosts is, is Yahweh the great I am? This is the name that, that speaks of might and power. It speaks of his strength and the vastness of his dominion. It's his supreme control over all creation. He is the true king of the universe. This is the name that God, God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he's calling him to service. In that chapter in Exodus 3, he says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The great I am, the one who will rescue his people. Lord here refers to his covenant name given to his people. And God is going to show his faithfulness to them. This is the Lord Almighty that is speaking to Haggai and he is rightly fearing him, revering him and he shares his message, God's message with God's people and the leaders of God's people and he calls them into question. He says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people, right here, this people, his chosen people have not finished the rebuilding of the temple. Now notice he doesn't say my people or God's people, and he says, these people. Their their disobedience had created a barrier between them and God. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is really a way for them to blame God for not prospering them enough so that they could build the temple. It's a deflection. The time has not yet come, they say. It's code for I have better things to do with my life. Another Hebrew translation says, this people say it's not a suitable moment to rebuild. A suitable moment. When is it a suitable moment to obey the Lord? When is it a suitable moment to begin serving God? I mean, if we're waiting for a time when there will be all the money that we need or when there'll be no problems or no roadblocks, then we'll keep waiting, and the time will never come. And this all comes back to our priorities for life, our our resolutions, and how we're going to live. And we can regularly come up yearly with a list like that of Parade Magazine and what we want to change for 2020, but those seldom have any lasting fruit in our lives. We need to have biblical resolutions, and to have biblical resolutions, we have to question then our priorities in life. Why do we live the way we do? And how do we know if we're living obediently? Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. And see here in verse 4, God's going to ask a rhetorical question to make them think. He says there in verse 4, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? These paneled houses are sealed Houses, their completed houses. We're not sure if it's reference to the, to the roof or, or the decoration, how, how, how beautiful they are. Either way, their homes, their houses were completed and the house of the Lord was still in ruins. And they had allowed the opposition and hostility to change their priorities for living in obedience to the Lord. Matthew says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Friends, neglecting God can cause us to make dreadful life decisions. And their comfort here had suffocated their faith and God wasn't gonna be silent anymore. And when God speaks, we need to listen. Where does God rank in your priorities for your life? Where does God's house, meaning God's people, rank? I said this last week. This book is not primarily about a building program, although there are some third-order implications about church buildings, but our our building here is not equated with the Old Testament temple. The purpose of this series in Haggai is not about building a, a new church, but about Christ filling each Christian. This is the temple we want to see built up, the church, the body, You and me. And yes, we should take care of the building that we meet in. It's a a tool for God to use. But the focus here is for us, the, the church family. We are now the temple in which Christ dwells. We are the bride of Christ. So where does church life and its involvement rank in your life? You know, when we have wrong priorities in life. Sometimes it leads, most times it leads to excess. And when our selfish desires, when they go unchecked by God and his word, we tend to cry out for more of this world and we'll never be satisfied. We won't find our complete fulfillment in this world. We'll always be wanting more and having the wrong priorities will lead then to excess in things of this world. This is why I ask if you prioritize the church in your life, And again, I don't mean building or programs, I mean the people, the people of the church. Do you prioritize relationships with people in the church? We're here to serve one another, to love one another, to care for one another. And if your life's priorities are unchecked and have grown excessive, you need help. And God says, I've given you the church, brothers and sisters, to come alongside you, to Show you yourself. So friends, can you think of someone right now that you could pull aside this week and have them ask you some questions about your life? Do you have priorities towards excessiveness, maybe towards money, just want more, money, more of it, or, or excessive feelings of anger or lust, or excessive love for someone or something in this world? And can you think of someone right now that you can talk to about these things? What about an unbalanced priorities in regards to our worship? Friends, we all worship something. We're born as worshipers. People responded to God in verse four by saying it's not time yet. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have said it to God also. Be careful of saying those four words in response to God. It's not time yet. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When the opportunity comes to give yourself to ministry, do you say it's not time yet? When we know we need to confess that sin, do we say it's, it's not time yet. When we know we should love that brother or sister in Christ, do we say it's, it's not time yet? When we know and recognize that we need to share the gospel with that friend or that family member that lives with us, do we say it's not time yet? They're, they're not ready to hear it. Imagine saying no to God right to his face. And we don't want to do that. And yet, if we're honest, we do it more than we realize. It's not time yet, God. I I know better than you, God. I've got plans here. It's not time. This is why we need the church to find that friend and ask them, Do I have that tendency to say no to God where his word is saying yes? Friend, are you passive towards God's word? Meaning you read it and yet you don't fully obey it. You sort of obey it. Partial obedience is partial disobedience. See, God's people in Haggai turn away and stop building because they received a real opposition. But honestly, they stop because of a fear of man, and it paralyzes them towards disobedience. And the life and activity of faithful Christians in this world will disrupt false worship. People will oppose us. People will not like it. They will feel challenged and convicted by your simple obedience to God's word. But that can't stop us from obeying God and following him. So friends, I want to encourage you to keep open to God and keep open to his word. You you might be tempted to wait in following God, but friend, that's not the voice of God. Keep your heart sensitive towards God and involve other brothers and sisters and the Lord in your life. You and I need the church. So let's not neglect the family outside of this meeting. So first, the Lord calls them into question. Second, the Lord cautions their inactivity. He's not done. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. They have abandoned God. They had stopped building the temple to focus on their personal lives, their homes, and they were convinced that this would lead to satisfaction and happiness in their lives. And perhaps they got a good deal on the house, right? You know, they thought, hey, this is a good deal. If I put a few shekels in here, the, the worth is going to go up and I can give more later. I'll get a good return on this investment, so I'm going to focus on my home. They're just going to be good stewards here. They were tired of the resistance. And so they they quit building a temple. And this is a common reaction when difficult times come into our lives or into the life of the church. It's easier to pull out. It's easier to disconnect. And to move on to things that we can manage. Sometimes when difficult things come, we look to, to find easy things that we can handle in different ways. I remember very clearly when we were in Sweden and I'm, I'm struggling to just understand this language that and I couldn't get a handle of it. You know what I did every night? I washed dishes because I could handle that. I felt like I could complete something by washing dishes because I couldn't grasp this language. It was so difficult. and So I pulled out and we do this in our lives. Some of you do this in the church. You've done in the past. You you take the gifts and the abilities that God gave you for the benefit of others and for the church and you hoard it for yourself. Haggai points out, it doesn't work that way. You won't be satisfied and God won't be honored. He says, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never ever fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. They had enough to eat, but not enough to feast. They had enough to drink, but they were never satisfied. They had enough clothes, but never really truly warm. They they worked hard and earned wages, but they they put that into bags that had holes. And what they got out of life was not what they were putting into it. They were were not experiencing the fullness of God's blessing, but they lived lives that were inadequate and unfulfilled. And why was was life going this direction for them? Because they simply were ignoring God and it led to blindness. They were not considering their ways. And they needed to stop. They needed to seriously consider their lives, to give careful thought, to think deeply. And he he seems to be calling them to think backwards about their actions. Literally, it means to set your heart on your ways, think deeply about your walk, your life, your decisions, your journey thus far. To think about that. So I ask, are are you wasting your life on vain pursuits? So the first steps of repentance is a realistic assessment of our lives, asking where we have gone wrong and why. And God wants his people in verse five to engage in some self-examination and he gives them some material to consider then in verse six. Now this isn't an early version of a prosperity gospel where if they scratch God's back, he's gonna scratch theirs. No, instead, it is the basic principle that God has designed the world so that it functions best when we're aligned with his commands and purposes. Human flourishing generally occurs when we honor God and follow his commands. And and I do understand that some trials come to us not as a result of any sin, and we see that in the scriptures in the life of Job and with Paul and his thorn in the flesh, and especially we see it with Jesus and his life and death. But we need to be careful to consider how God works in our lives with the providence that God brings into our lives to expose sin sometimes. God was afflicting them with a great concern for their well-being because they were not in a right relationship with him. And they might have reacted against the charges why the temple had not been built because they believed the economy was in dire straits, but here God says to them that he's responsible for the economy. God is in control overall. And we'll see that even more clearly in the third point. The people needed to be awakened. They had been lulled into thinking that their lives were all about themselves. And Haggai comes to preach to them to turn their hearts toward God, to think deeply about how they are prioritizing their lives, how they live, how they choose to spend their time, how they choose to spend their money and their energy. And he's asking what the resolutions were for their lives. Consider your lives. So friends, fathers, and husbands, Are you pursuing a life of vanity, spending all your time and energy on yourself and your career while you're neglecting your bride and your kids? Haggai says, consider your ways. Are moms and wives here, are you caught up with things that will not last, trying to find satisfaction in something other than God and the life that he gave you with your husband and your kids? Haggai says, consider your ways. Friends, Have you been neglecting your own personal time with the Lord and time in prayer with him? Are you neglecting other Christians in your life, seeking instead to live all by yourself? Haggai says, consider your ways. And perhaps today God is waking you up to realize that there are some things that need to change in your life, some priorities that need to change. Let me speak to you high school and college students that are here. And even junior high that are here? Are you searching for popularity or in clothes or satisfaction there and having a good time or possibly relationships? Can you pause for a moment and take advice from us older folks who love you and who want something better for you? We know, we know the pain of wasted priorities in our lives, and we know the pain of wasted years of pursuing things that never truly satisfy. There's no pain like it. So can I encourage you strongly to seek God while you were young? Be resolved to follow God before anything else in this world. See, these people, in verse 6, are reaping lives of futility. They're running faster and faster like hamsters on a treadmill, getting nowhere, all because they neglected God. Unbelievers that are here, those that have no relationship with God. Does verse 6 look a lot like your life? You work and work and have nothing to show for it. Perhaps, though, you, you say to me, "No, not at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. You're here and you have everything you want. There's plenty. You have lots of money. You have all the clothes that you want, and the car and home and experiences. Friends, don't let your prosperity fool you that you're OK. Prosperity is not a golden ticket to heaven. Consider your ways think deeply about your life. And see we'll see in a moment that God will judge his own people for their wasted priorities. So how much more terrible will his judgment be for those that have rejected him in all things? Have you considered that your lack of satisfaction in your life isn't random, but God's active opposition of you? You may not be guilty of neglecting to build a temple in ancient Jerusalem, You have neglected God in your life. And this neglect is horrific. It's bad enough for it to go on for one day, but it's going on day after day. Are you failing to consider Christ and your sin and your rejection of Jesus' payment for your sins on the cross? Friends, if you're not a Christian here, and you're not following him, the Bible says that he is actively opposed to you. You know, there's a sporting event that's happening today. Right? Two teams will square off for a silver trophy. They'll be opposed to one another. They won't play nice. But let's switch the opponents for a moment. See, friend, if your life is not in Jesus Christ, you're on one side of the field. The talented, the successful person, seemingly full of life and potential, but on the other side of the field is God. He created everything, including you. And he knows you better than you know yourself. And if you've never submitted your life to Jesus Christ, he is against you. He is opposed to you. And you have no chance against God. And he is the only one in the entire universe that you wouldn't want to be opposed to. There's never a good reason to be opposed to God. God always has our best in mind. Always. And the Bible teaches us again and again that anyone who is still in their sin is opposed to God. It isn't that he's a little upset with you. Instead, the Bible says that you are his enemy. James 4.4 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friend, the world is passing away. And even before it passes away, it still won't be faithful to you. But God is always faithful. He has always been faithful and he will always continue to be faithful to you. He will never pass away. His promises will never fail us. His word will endure and he will always make good in what he has told us. So I pray for you, friends. I've been praying for you that have rejected Christ and his offer of salvation. And I pray that your soul will begin to sense how terrible it is to be separated from God. And in God's kindness, I pray that God will let you sense the long-term, unsatisfying nature of sin. And that you would trust in Christ today, not in this world, not in yourself. And friend, if you have more questions on what it means to live as a Christian, I encourage you strongly to find myself one of the other pastors here. We'd love to sit down and talk with you. You know, God could have left you at home today. He could have caused it that you didn't wake up, you didn't hear your alarm. He could have left you to yourself, but in his kindness, he brought you here. And I pray through the power of his word and the work of the Holy Spirit, you will see the unfulfillment of a life that is not found in living In Jesus Christ. So we've seen the Lord questioning them and cautioning them, and last, we see the Lord commanding their worship. Verses 7 through 11. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why declares the Lord of hosts because of my house that it lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. I believe here Haggai wants them to look forward to the next steps of life lived for God. That's why he asked them again in verse 7 to consider your ways. Consider now how you should live. In light of what he just shared in verse 6, he encourages them to look forward and how they should live from this point on, and he clarifies their lives up to this point, again in verse 9, by exposing the gap between expectations and reality. And they expected a lot from their crops, and it came to little. They expected to be filled and satisfied with their own comforts, and and it came to disappoint them. Why? Because God blew it away. He says, God God did that because they regarded him as a spiritual option for their lives. And this echoes back, and it's writing to his people, this echoes back to the blessings and cursings that God gave to his people in Deuteronomy 28 in the covenant. And through obedience to his word, there would be blessing. But when they disobeyed, there would be curses. And he's showing his people here that the results of their abandonment of their covenant with God. And he says clearly in verse 9, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. See, for them, if anything was needed for their own house, they ran out to get it right away. And they had misplaced priorities, which caused their worship to be misplaced. He's expounding on verse 6 here and describing in great detail the faults of those who, who get distracted from worshiping God. And they had a prevailing apathy for spiritual matters. They had abandoned the covenant again and were quickly zealous for their selfish pursuits. But God would not be replaced by another idol for worship. He would discipline his people and draw them back into right fellowship with himself. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. And As Christians, we shouldn't push against the discipline of God. It is grace that he brings difficulty in our lives. See, God will frustrate all of the hopes that we have in this world so that our hopes will be in him alone. He says in verse 10, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beasts, and all their labors. God uses a play on words here in verse 11 and back up in verse nine, because the Hebrew, he uses the word Hareb there for ruins in verse nine. But in verse 11, he uses the word horeb for the word drought. And what he's saying is the ruins of the temple are brought about I brought the drought in the land. In some ways, he's, he's pointing to the land and then points to the, the ruins of the temple. In some ways, you could just mime this sermon, right? You see the land. It's that way because of the temple. Heavens and earth obey the creator's word here, but his people will not. And so God will pursue his people. He will not let him go. Matthew Henry wrote of this, said, God will make us sensible of our necessary and consistent dependence upon him throughout all the links in the chain of second causes from first to last so that we can at no time say we have no further occasion for God and his providence. Well, when we come to the end here, we might conclude that the point is for the people to get out of trouble. They they should just obey and then get out of this trouble and have relief. We might believe to get that relief that we should just do what God says, but but that isn't why God commands obedience from his children. It isn't so that we could have nice things and unpleasant life. No, it's so we could have God. And in verse 8, it says, and that I may take pleasure in it, in the temple, and I may be glorified, says the Lord. The heart of this chapter, and really the heart of the message of this book is right there in verse 8. That I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified," says the Lord. And God's purpose in all things and always for His own glory and for His own pleasure. God's glory is greater than our nation's glory. God's glory is greater than our church's glory. God's glory is greater than our own personal glory. And don't mistake this to seem like it's only religious thing that God can be gloried in and, and, and take pleasure in. No, it's in our lives. So God takes pleasure in your friendships and in your marriage when it's lived for his glory and not our own. God takes pleasure in your parenting of your kids when it's done for his honor and glory and not our own. God takes pleasure in our church and our ministry here when the focus is not ourselves but on him. See, God wanted to make himself known to his people and not only them but also to the nation. They would have the tendency, I'm sure, when the temple was destroyed to think, look, our God won, your God lost. And rebuilding the temple showed them yet again that their God was still reigning. So as the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, they showed that God was worthy of their trust. And they needed to give their their all for the building of the temple. See, this building was only a foretaste of the future glory that was to come. The temple would be built and it would last for years. In fact, it was standing in Jerusalem when Jesus came and God would set apart the temple in Jerusalem, but it would only be a faint indication of the glory of God because God would come physically to be with his people in Jesus Christ. And we read in the first chapter of John and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The, the temple to be built in Haggai's day was only a picture of God's presence because eventually he would come and dwell with his people. Matthew 1, says Jesus is telling him, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's saying, me, it's me, I'm here. And the function of the temple is, is in Jesus, the temple disappears forever. We read that in, in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus knew that he would replace it. Jesus knew exactly why he had come. And he would say in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Not the building, but Jesus and his death. That's why he came. He came to die for the sins of all who would repent and trust in him alone. And after he He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit to live in us. And we, church, are the temple of God. Friends, this morning we have the opportunity to remember of why Jesus came to earth. We get to partake of this. Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for our sins. and So we have the opportunity to see the word as we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is one of the ordinances of the church. It's the duty of the body of Christ, of the Christian. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to warn you to not take part of this meal. This is only for Christians, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to watch us as we worship together and then find one of us elders or pastors this morning. We'd love to talk to you more. And Christians that are here understand that you do not partake of this meal this morning as a perfect Christian. We have all sinned this week, either in deed or word or in mind. And so as we pass out the the bread and juice, I want you to spend time considering your sin and confessing it to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So I'm going to pray And we're gonna hand out the, the bread here as a communion. So men, why don't you come forward to serve our church family. And church, why don't you join me as I pray. Father, we join together as the body and we thank you for sending Jesus to die on our behalf. His broken body for us causes us to remember what he's done for us. His life on the cross and death was sufficient to pay for our sins. And we thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus on our behalf. And may he be honored in this time as we partake together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.